This is the Education Gadfly Show. Have you thought about how this might destroy, destroy the research team's credibility <laughs> with the education <laughs> yeah, reform community? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. Please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Ashley Berner, Assistant Professor and Deputy Director of the Institute for Education Policy at John Hopkins University. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And also joining me uh, online from somewhere in Mexico, I think, or possibly Oklahoma, Adam Tyner. Adam, are you with us? I'm here. I'm somewhere in the t- central time zone. I promise that. Okay. All right. Let's get to it. Up next, our Ed Reform update. Well, so let's get right to it. Ashley, you wrote a book, uh, and I don't want to butcher the title, but it is Pluralism and American Public Education. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. Uh, tell us about the argument you make in the book. So the argument I make in the book is that the United States has grown accustomed to uniform school systems in which the district school is legitimate as representative of public schooling. And my argument is that most democracies don't do it this way, Mm -hmm. that most democracies support a variety of schools on equal footing, whether Jewish, socialist, Montessori, Catholic, Mm -hmm. and they also hold them accountable. So most democratic systems are pluralistic. They empower parents and they protect the public purpose. Okay, so uh, that is uh, there's a lot packed into that statement right there. Where do you want to go with it? Is this uh, is this just an argument for school choice or is it broader than that? So it's broader than that. The school choice movement of necessity argues essentially for exceptions against the norm of uniformity. Okay. And what pluralism does, if it's a historic pluralistic system, is it has school choice by design. But let me back up for just one moment. Pluralism assumes several things. Number one, it assumes that education isn't neutral and can't be neutral, that there's no way to design a morally neutral school, that every component of education is charged, it is at some point selected, even if we've forgotten the reasons. So pluralism assumes that schooling isn't neutral and that therefore we should fund a variety of schools that have their own unique, distinctive cultures and make explicit normative claims. So that's the first premise of pluralism. The second, however, is where pluralists depart from libertarians. And so the second premise is that education is a common good. It's not a public good alone. Certainly it is serves individual purposes, but that essentially public education is justified by the fact that unlike many choices that we make, it matters to me how your children turn out and it matters to you that my children know how to to vote and how democratic institutions work and so on. And that really is the basis for the accountability systems that pluralism has in place. Okay. All right. So help me try to unpack that. Where are we drawing the line exactly? Because to me, those seem as abstract principles, they make sense, right? But when it comes down to a very particular uh, issue, like say how we talk about evolution, right? That seems like something that it either has to fall into the bucket of accountability and I care about your kids uh, and how they turn out, right? Or it has to fall into the other bucket, which is, well, you know, pluralism, we all have different beliefs and normative claims. How do we resolve it when it comes to specific issues? Or or, mm-hmm. or isn't that what the fight's really about? Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good question. So let me back up first and say that the accountability systems and structures and most pluralistic systems have to do with instruction or educate or the curriculum 
and assessments. So they assume that there's a common body of knowledge that all students need to know, no matter what kind of school they attend. Now that information, as it were, can be delivered through different lenses. So as an example, in Alberta, Canada, which funds homeschooling and Inuit schooling and Catholic schooling and secular schools, the civics curriculum has similar information that all students have to learn, but the lens through which, for example, Catholics study citizenship draws upon theological principles. So it's a both and in that sense now, in in general. So you ask, you ask the question about a very specific thorny issue of evolution. So evolution is a biological theory that all pluralistic systems require to be taught. Right. However, they also allow distinctive schools to, and they fund schools that also teach creationism. So let me tell you what this looks like. In the Netherlands and the UK in particular, which I happen to know the most about, they do fund schools that teach creationism as truth. They also require those students to take national exams that require knowledge of evolution. So that's where it's a kind of both and. I think where it gets tricky and where to my knowledge, no country except Israel has really addressed are in claims about sexual orientation. That really ha- that is a an issue that's already coming to the fore here in the United States. Oh come on, that's a simple issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have my own particular feelings about that, which I've written about in your in your columns, um, which is that this this is an issue that may may fall under the category of categorical psychological harm. Um, That was a justification that was used to overturn the 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 segregation, and I think it could potentially come to that. But in the the present time, obviously, there's no federal law on this. I got you. Adam, do you want to jump in here? Well, yeah, I guess I have a question about kind of a broader sociological question for Ashley. There's just been this concern that we're living in an era that is seeing the demise of a lot of social institutions that used to give community stability. If you look at statistics for voter turnout, attendance at public meetings, attendance at houses of worship, labor unions, fraternal organizations, people say bowling leagues, they're they're all down. And People are either connecting in other ways, maybe through Facebook or in other superficial ways, or they aren't connecting at all. And we see big recent upticks in metrics for stuff like loneliness. But more broadly, I guess this could threaten democracy because many people believe that we can only have a healthy democracy if we have strong social institutions. And schools are something that every community has and it has stakes for just about everybody. And it's one of the few institutions that still has some common purpose. Since we're already seeing all this increasing polarization and social fragmentation, it seems like a reasonable concern that the pluralism you're talking about could exacerbate those problems, could lead to immigrant groups having their own schools that are separate, and so then they don't have as much exchange with the the local population, or other, or that you could have ideological polarization that gets reinforced. What what do you say to that? Adam, I think your question about social cohesion is one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I have two responses. The first is that international studies of citizenship outcomes, civic outcomes, suggest that there's not any advantage to a uniform system over a plural system. Some of the highest performing countries in the world on civic outcomes 
are pluralistic. Denmark is the top of the list in the most recent study, for example. And Denmark funds 85% of the capital costs of any school in their system. But at the level of the individual school, whether you're talking about a pluralistic or a uniform system, schools that have distinctive cultures, strong cultures, that make normative claims and where the mission's clear and, and that reinforce specific values... So schools with those kinds of cultures and that also have a robust academic curriculum, these schools have an outsized positive independent effect upon short and long-term civic outcomes. So let me just say a, a brief moment about what we mean when we're talking about civic outcomes. Right. So political scientists look at four things in the main. They look at civic knowledge. Do you know how these institutions work? They look at civic skills. Do you know how to interpret legislation or write a letter to your congressperson? They look at political tolerance of can you hold strong beliefs and affirm someone else's contrary position? And then they look, number four, at the volunteering capacity and the habit of engagement and community participation. Those four measures. So when we, when we look at research from the last 40 years in this country and around the world, we find, ironically, that schools that are quite distinctive, in particular Catholic schools, Catholic high schools, have an outsized independent effect upon citizenship outcomes. I guess it. I just wonder because we, we have the United States, the conventional wisdom is that the United States is an outlier in its ability to integrate diverse populations of immigrants and that that's a problem that a lot of other um what you know, at least a lot of european countries have problems with that and then we also you say that we're an outlier in having a more uniform school system and i guess my own experience in public schools just kind of leads me to believe that having like that kind of contact with different kinds of communities could be a positive thing and so it's kind of counterintuitive well i don't and i don't and again i don't i don't think that that pluralism suggests that there's any one right way to do it. That, mm -hmm. you know, even a country like the Netherlands has 30, they fund 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing and 30% of the students attend what we would consider district schools. So there's always a role for a state-run school. I think that, that you're, you're absolutely right. Sometimes District schools are fantastic at social cohesion and strong academic outcomes. There's not, I, I don't mean to suggest there's anything negative about state-run schools. All systems have them and there's certainly room. It's simply that when you look at the empirical record, there's no, there is no inherent advantage. And I just want to say one thing about immigrants. Some, there are many countries that actually now have a higher percentage of immigrant children than we do. Australia does. Canada does. Now they have different immigration policies than we do. But Singapore is almost as high as we are, and many of the European countries, Liechtenstein and so forth, have higher immigration rates. I think the EU has changed the equation over there, which has hmm. prompted some of the European governments to respond with policies that are geared towards social cohesion and also to be mindful of the materials that the children in the schools use. What are you mm -hmm. hitting us with all these facts here? I, I Listen, America's a melting pot. I don't want to hear anything else out of anybody. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, just to chime in real quickly, I mean, whenever this topic comes up, the point I always make is, first of all, it, it seems to me like this common school, uh, it's, it's almost a myth, right? I mean, if you go to a Texas school, right, and you go to a Portland, Oregon school, I'm not sure that they're teaching you the same thing 
right? When you, I, I mean, I just, in history class, right? I mean, I, this notion that we're actually, that we actually have one school system, right? it doesn't really hold up, it stand, doesn't stand scrutiny. And then the other point I would make is, I, I mean, look, where do we think Hillary Clinton voters and Trump voters went to school? I mean, if it were working, uh, I think, as well as, as, as we sort of assume it does, I'm not sure we'd be where we are today. So I guess I, I lean towards your position on this. Well, you use the term the, a myth. So Charles Glenn's wonderful book, The Myth of the Common School, is the first exposure that many of us had to the history of the common school movement. And this is another reason I wrote the book. Many Americans don't know that we used to have a pluralistic system and that when Horace Mann first started first wheeled out his notion of a common school that was state-run and uniform, it was met with great skepticism until something happened. In the middle of the 19th century, millions of Catholic immigrants came to this country, and millions. And in some cities, they became almost the majority population. So they received funding. In many cases, they received funding for Catholic schools. As I said, we had a pluralistic system, but the Protestant majority was pro-Anglo-Saxon, anti-immigrant, and in particular, anti-Catholic. And so the presence of so many Catholics threatened the Protestant majority, and it spawned the 19th century nativism that led to a uniform school system. There were elite politicians and, and political parties that took over the legislatures, and then there were kind of grassroots movements. The Ku Klux Klan was a big part of the nativist anti-Catholic movement. So the common school movement in this country was essentially Protestant through and through. Ashley, yes. do you think that in our present day that the public funding of Islamic schools could be checked by Islamophobia, that a similar kind of anti-Islam sentiment in the United States could be a, a barrier to your vision because of those kind of prejudices? Oh, sure. And there, you're absolutely right. There have been representatives in different states that have pulled back from supporting tax credits because they were concerned about Islamic schools. And I would yeah. say, you know, looking at history, the great irony is that Catholic schools have had the, the best citizenship outcomes of, of any school sector in our country historically. This is in the aggregate, of course. I would expect to see the same thing with Islamic schools. You, mm -hmm. The University of Virginia and Charles Glenn at Boston have been studying Islamic schools. And from what I've read, I'm convinced that they're a benefit, a great benefit to our country. All right. I think that's all the time we have uh, for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. Once again, it's uh, Pluralism and American Public Education. Up next, Amber's Research Minute. All right. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to the show, Amber. What do you got for us today, Amber? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's around the holidays, and research land is a little light. So I was digging up some IES statistics studies. Uh, I know it sounds really exciting, but anyway, I think there are two statistics that we all should kind of know in our head in education. One is per-pupil expenditures, right? That's pretty important to know about. And yep. the other one are uh, just graduation rates, because we spend so much time talking about graduation rates. So it sounds unexciting, but IES just this week came out with two new studies that basically give us the latest and greatest percentages, data, all sorts of just descriptive statistics around per pupil, re revenues, expenditures, and graduation rates. And that's what we're going to dive in today. Okay. okay. I'm going to do 10. I'm going to give you all like a little quiz because I know you guys are kind of competitive, um, but I'm going to, some of them are softballs. I think we should know them. But anyway, this is just good stuff 
to know if you're an education, research, or policymaker. All right. They come from the National Public Education Finance Survey, which is part of that Common Core data collection. Um, and they ask the state education agencies basically to fill this stuff out. Okay. Number one, 50 states plus DC report spending $678.4 billion in revenues collected for public elementary and secondary education in the latest year. This is 2016 data. Okay. Um, state and local governments provided what percent? What do you think? What percent of all revenues? We kind of know the statistic, right? Uh, state and local, it's got to be 88%. Adam, what do you think? I'm going to go 89. 89. 91.7, fellas. It is It is creeping up. <laughs> Adam takes it. All I'm, right. I'm going to price this right you every time on this day. Uh, so just go right ahead. The feds are contributing 8.3%. This total revenue is increased by 4% from 2015, with the largest increase, again, coming at the state level from state revenues. Number two, total revenues per pupil averaged what nationally in the most recent year we have data? Oh. What do you think? Adam, you need to go first? Just yeah, Adam, go first. Oh, boy. Uh, wait, this is, uh, this is for everybody? This is state, federal, total local? Total revenues per yeah. pupil averaged nationally. Oh, God. Uh, maybe 11,000. All right, David. I'm going to go 11,001. <laughs> you guys are doing the prices right. Come on, 13,474 yeah. uh, nationally, an increase of 3.9% between 2015 and 2016, which further builds on the prior increase of 2.6% the prior year. Number three, current expenditures increased nationally by 2.9%. Within that category, Expenditures for instruction increased the most by about 3.2%. Likewise, national expenditures per pupil increased over the last two years. Uh, I actually don't have a quiz in here for you. It's about <laughs> 20, It's about 11,841 in 2016. So anyway, that, I, don't know why, I don't know why. I already asked you a little bit about that. Number four, <laughs> we'll just toss that one out. In terms of state per pupil expenditures, all right. Who in, among all 50 states do you think has the lowest state per pupil expenditures? Oh, no. I'm afraid it might be the state I'm from. <laughs> it's got to be Kansas, right? Uh, I, I, I'm going to, sadly, I'm going to, I don't know what it says about my, my, uh, where I'm from, but I'm going to have to pick my own home state of Oklahoma. All right. Adam, you're, you're not, you're not right, but you're not wrong. You'll see, you'll see later there, there in the bottom of the bucket, but it's actually Utah. Really? Now, what do you think huh. Utah spends the lowest in the country? I'll go first again. I think they spend $5,200, $5,200. Right. All right, Adam, you going to go with 5201 Uh That's what I was going to go with, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you see a theme going on here? It's $7,006. Okay. Right. You guys right. are lowballing these every <laughs> single time. All right, that's more than I thought. All right, current expenditures per pupil were at least 40% higher than the national average in a handful of places. So now we're going on the other end. Who's okay. spending a lot? Come on, give me a couple. I'm gonna, I've got five in here, State so you're going to get some. wide I'm going to go with New Jersey. Hey, New Jersey, you got oh, one of I think them. That's a New Jersey is as one of them. It's a 19041. Adam, you got another one you want to toss out? These are these are the higher the higher guys. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go Massachusetts. Massachusetts is good. Um, it's it's a little bit lower on the higher end, but it's it did make the made the cut at night at sixteen nine eighty six. Okay, all right. Uh, just DC. Come on, DC. Right. DC. Oh, How'd well, you, you forget said DC? Oh, sure. You said states, states and jurisdictions. Okay. Sorry, DC's at twenty-one one thirty-five. Yeah. Connecticut makes the cut at around nineteen six. Yeah. Okay. All right. Besides Utah, I'm on number five now. We need to speed it up. Besides Utah, three states have per pupil expenditures less than eight thousand dollars. These are at the bottom of the list. 
Adam's already got one of, of just there's just three. Oklahoma. Who, what other two two states um, do you think West are at the bottom? Virginia. All right. I'm going to go with Mississippi and Alabama. All right. Strangely enough, it was Arizona and Idaho. Huh. Made the bottom three. Yeah. Huh. Mississippi okay. did not uh, not make it in there. So, hmm. all right. Uh, increases in per pupil expenditures were largest in what state? Like, had the biggest increase in what state from 2015, 2016? Oh, boy. The biggest increase, but this is two years ago. This is pre teacher strikes. That's right. 15, 16, and it's not a hard one. I'm going to out myself as a researcher. I have no idea. It's no idea? not a hard one. Not. I mean, like, how do I know what happened three years ago? If you're a mousy ago? researcher, oh, it's, it's hard. State budget. Um, well, think of, I mean, anyway, I'm not going to. Never mind. Okay. Take a pass. Pass. Adam, you passing? Uh, I'll say California. Woohoo! I don't know. You got it. It's California. <laughs> 8. Okay. 8.6% increase from 1516. Wow. 15, wow. wow. And right. that states, we, we, we know it's in trouble. But anyway, number seven. Salaries and wages account for what percentage of current expenditures? Uh, this is current salaries and wages, no pensions. Wait, sal- oh, sorry, salaries, wages, and benefits. After yes. you, Adam. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> this is. I'm, we're looking for a percent of total ex- of that uh, of, of the, the total, total expenditure? pie of the total expenditure pie. I mean, obviously, we oh, know boy. it's high um, that goes into salaries, wages, and benefits. That's where we see the brunt of this stuff. But how high do you think it is? Have you thought about how this might destroy, destroy the research team's credibility <laughs> with the education reform yeah, community yeah, having us yeah, let's answer pause all these here, questions? Right? Okay, I'm going to say I'm going to say forty percent. What? No, no, oh, come on. The, I'm, I'm not. I would say forty-one percent, but that's terrible too. I'm going to go with eighty-seven percent. Eighty percent. Andrew's going to get rid of all of this part. Yeah. It's fine. Okay, please edit. All right, now we're going to switch. You're going to do better, I think, here for the dropout and graduation rates. All right, we got two more to go. Okay. Um, there's a multitude of ways to calculate this stuff, and there are probably 10 different ways in the report. I'm going to go with a status dropout rate, okay? That's a percentage of 16 to 24-year-olds who are not enrolled in school and have not earned a high school credential. All right? What percentage do we think that was in 2016, the status dropout rate? Not enrolled. What's the age again? They're 16 to 24. They're not enrolled in school and they never earned a high school credential. Um, so wait, 16 to, to 24? 16 to 24, yep. The percentage of those guys not enrolled in school, not earned a high school credential. I'll say 24%. I'll say 16%. Well, you guys are really 6.1%. Okay, we're not, we're not thinking about it right. Right. That Another, doesn't imply that 94% of kids get graduate. That's right. That's why there's 15 different ways to calculate it. Yeah, Another okay. calculation oh, okay. has it at 4.8%, which is really lower. Um, like, let, hey, we're let, doing great. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the completion rate, now this is the one you hear bandied about a lot, okay. right? The completion rate, 18 to 24 who hold a diploma or GED, 92%. I'm going to let y'all off on okay. that. All right, right, number nine, and then the ACR four-year cohort graduation rate, like that's the percentage of kids who four years later, they graduated. Got any broad ideas about what that one might be? 80. So this is college? A, uh, no, four-year cohort graduation rate, high school. Oh, four-year, okay. not five-year. Right, four-year. So it's going to be, obviously, going to be lower because, you know, than you would think that we just talked about with the other 92% rate. Yeah, I really didn't understand the other statistic. I'm going to say 82. 78. Uh, 84. You guys did better okay. with that one. 84. Right. Um, for whites, that rate is 88%. For blacks, it's 76%, by okay. the way. All right, number 10, last one. The percentage of kids who take the GED and pass it. 
I'll say I'll say eighty percent. Okay. What you got, David? Um it's gonna be crazy, right? Ninety six percent. Uh not not too crazy. Seventy six, Adam. Okay. That that was in your oh. favor. Right. So that is it. That's that's where we are on GED and uh, per pupil expenditures. Okay. It's a lot. I mean, these are kind of need to know things. Like I think that we all should brush up on these things on the research team. <laughs> yeah, anytime you have a spare minute. Um, any surprises? I guess I'll ask you guys to close it up. Any surprises and all that stuff? Or I want to hear more about the GED. I, I feel like. It? Well, yeah. I just feel like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I don't really. I had no sense of what that number was, and yeah. it made me want to know. There's an event dropout rate too, by the way, that I didn't give you, which is like you started one year from from tenth to twelfth grade. You started one year, but you weren't there the next year. Okay, and you didn't get uh, a degree. Um, and that one was actually a little bit lower. So yeah, I I go back to man. This is uh, this is why we've been confused about this all these years. Um, and people say, oh, the, you know, the graduation rate's out of the water, it's blown up. But there's also different ways that you can calculate that obviously inflates the grade, the, you know, the percentage. Um, and we definitely, I think the, what most people bandy, most, what most people like is the adjusted cohort graduation rate. And that's the one that tends to be lower. But we end up getting the status dropout rate, eh, whatever, because that's the higher one. But anyway, so be it. Amber, were there any uh, statistics for the the uh, state spending numbers that were adjusted for cost of living or anything? Just because and that's a big all the part time of we that have for today. <laughs> I did yeah. not see that, but that's so that's such a my question, and I did not uh, I did not see it. I mean, that they were obviously adjusted for inflation, but uh, but not those not those regional and state differences. Okay. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Until next time, I'm Adam Tyner. And I'm David Griffith. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.